0: Historian Andrew Roberts calls Kenneth Rendell the manuscript whisperer. Rendell's new book is about his traveling the world during his career, buying, selling significant, iconic, historical letters and documents from the Renaissance to present day. The title of Ken Rendell's book is Safeguarding History, Trailblazing Adventures Inside the Worlds of Collecting and Forging History. One of the stories he tells is about his role in determining whether the Hitler diaries published in 1983 were real or fake. Kenneth W. Rendell, how did you get involved in the Nixon Watergate and his paper story, the tapes?
1: I was basically retired at that point from doing appraisals or doing any kind of consulting work. But the, I thought the interest level of his White House papers uh, was sufficient to call me back into it. I had told his lawyers that I would only work on it for two weeks because I just couldn't take any more time out of my business and that I thought I could settle this with the Department of Justice within that two week period. What did they want you to do? Well, I needed to come up with a fair market value. They, they had sued the government because Nixon's papers, as unreasonably as this sounds, actually belonged to him personally. That was the case with every president until Jimmy Carter and the law was changed. So the government essentially had to pay Nixon what his papers were worth on the open market, as well as the Watergate tapes. So that was my job to arrive at a price that Nixon, uh, the Nixon side wanted. But I was pretty convinced the Department of Justice would agree because they hired me in other cases to represent them um, and come up with a a value that uh, uh, would hold up uh, should it go to court. So in, I didn't think they were going to criticize what I did.
0: In, in the end, and how how much was all that? Were those tapes and the and the papers worth? Well,
1: the papers were worth thirty million dollars, and I could have sold them for that. In my and I gave a, a very elaborate analysis. The Watergate tapes were another matter. It was a little harder to nail down, uh, but I told Nixon's lawyers that. I thought we had to give the the Watergate tapes to the government. Uh, I told him that no judge was going to go home and say to his wife, he just gave Richard Nixon everything he asked for. So we would contribute the Watergate tapes, which his lawyers didn't like that attitude. And I said, well, I did have a way. Uh, that I could evaluate them. But you have to remember that fair market value legally does not necessarily involve good taste. So I would cut the tapes up, put them uh, each word or phrase in a a Lucite block with the lettering Richard Nixon's Watergate tapes, and then underneath would be what it said on the piece of tape. And if he swore, that made it worth a lot more money. (laughs) Why Why do you think so? Well, I think it played into uh, an image that people had of Nixon and people didn't want to uh, see him in a positive way um, and the swearing happened when he was meeting with Haldeman and Ehrlichman because I, I knew that Nixon was socially very awkward and he, he was trying to be one of the boys with, with those two um, because they were the tough guys and I think Nixon was trying to act like a tough guy because he was very different when he talked to other people and I actually found in, in Nixon's papers uh, a lot of his own notes that were very important uh, in really seeing the complete Richard Nixon he would go over to the executive office building at night And he would draft out ideas on yellow legal pads. And you could tell how much he was drinking by how his handwriting changed. In fact, um, I I took my daughter to the Oval Office uh, when uh, W was president. Uh, And then a Secret Service agent said, I'd like to show you something. And we walked over to the EOB and he took me to a room and he said, this is the room Nixon used to write in. He said, I'm the one who used to help him get back um, after a lot of drinking to the White House. So it was interesting seeing that locale. And he came across as a very um, complicated person and conflicted person. But
0: there definitely was a balance with him. In the end, how much money did Richard Nixon himself get from uh, the papers and the tapes?
1: Almost nothing. Um, the, um, the law firm wanted to uh, litigate this. I would not raise the $30 million uh, to forty five, which they had asked me to do. And they said they would litigate it, which they did um they ended up with approximately 20 million um the case was settled after long litigation long expensive litigation um and the law firm got about half approximately half um it was it's in my book the exact figures uh, the nixon family got almost nothing the the nixon library didn't get that much so it um they should have Um, given me the chance to settle at 30 million.
0: I think this is the one where you said the lawyers got over seven million dollars.
1: Yeah, it was pretty staggering.
0: So how do you determine what's your philosophy? I know you talk about this in your book about what something is worth. Well, it's it starts with how
1: important is the person and how important is the subject area? So if you have uh, Supreme Court uh, Justice who was important like Marshall or Jay um, and you get an important manuscript, you have a a potential uh, client base of lawyers and lawyers who generally make good money uh, will make legal things more valuable than say religious uh, pieces. Um, because there's never been that much demand for religious leaders. I'm not talking about Martin Luther or John Calvin, um, but almost everyone else, including popes. Uh, So the area is important, and the importance of the person to that area. Then what they say in the letter uh, is very important. Uh, While I've sold Jefferson letters for $20,000, I've also sold one for a million dollars. And that kind of range can happen depending on the the importance of the content. In the Jefferson letter at a million dollars, he said the most important part of the Constitution is freedom of religion. And then he explains why he considers that the most important part.
0: What would you ask to do for Jackie Kennedy?
1: Um, I didn't do anything directly for her. We knew her; um, she was a client in our New York gallery, um, and her her son, uh, John F. Kennedy Jr., uh, was a client, and Caroline was a client. So we were. Fr- I was friendly um, with them, but I was involved in a very complicated situation. When uh, Bill Manchester wrote Death of a President, he had um, hundreds of hours of tape recordings of interviews with her. She and Bobby Kennedy had selected Manchester, who knew John Kennedy from World War II, uh, to write the definitive book and the only one they would be interviewed for, and the she felt that she was too open and too personal and she wanted what she said taken out of the book. Um, the, there was a lawsuit, I'm not sure whether it was filed or not, um, but interestingly Dick Goodwin uh, was the lawyer, uh, He was a private practice lawyer. He He worked for John Kennedy and LBJ but he had graduated at the top of Harvard Law and Dick Goodwin represented her. Um, and they came to an agreement with Manchester to delete parts of the book. Uh, those parts and everything about negotiations was put in a sealed box uh, to be opened in 100 years at the Kennedy Library. I was the principal appraiser for IRS and they brought me in and told me they didn't know what was in the box. And I couldn't find out what was in the box. No one knew, except Manchester and uh, Goodwin and, and the Kennedys. Um, but he had declared a gift, uh, to tax donation. Uh, and they wanted me to come up with the price. And I said, it's just impossible. And I didn't know what it was, and I wasn't going to do it. But in the end, they couldn't find anybody to do it. Uh, and I was on the appraisal board for IRS. So... I took a shot at it and I said if he's claimed four or five times what I come up with I will I'm not going to proceed with this because nobody knows um, it's a shot in the dark um, but I did use the logic of just how big a news story would it be in 2067 uh, when the hundred years were up you know it, it would be a one day news story if that uh, and it would have to be pretty startling, instead of just the personal feelings, of of Jackie Kennedy. But I later found that found out just how much she struggled to deal with with the assassination, and uh, with the enormous efforts she made to get her own balance in the years afterwards. And um, I can certainly understand, and I was very sympathetic to her wanting these parts taken out. What? I actually ended up with a set of the galley proofs before the things were taken out. I've never read them. I, I thought it would be an intrusion into her privacy. Um, and I just, I have them locked away. So you kept them? I've kept them. I, I didn't want them out there. Um, I didn't. I, I bought them. And I didn't want them out there. I didn't want anybody writing about... Uh, Her personal reaction uh, particularly after I I became very aware of how devastating it was and how she really worked trying to emotionally survive Um, I mean this was a process that took years and uh, I had great respect for that you can't second guess how anybody uh, reacts and how they deal with a tragedy Um, and some people could have an attitude well they could just get on with their life but it didn't happen to them it happened to her and however somebody survives that's their uh, way of doing it Um, so I I was very
0: sympathetic what did you end up putting what what kind of a value did you put on what's in that those boxes
1: 50,000 um, that I thought that some university would probably pay it uh, for the publicity of obtaining it um, but if Manchester claimed 250 I wasn't going to argue it was a almost a board kind of thing
0: did, did do you know what he claimed
1: uh, no, I I didn't. Um, I I know that it, that it was not contested by the
0: IRS. How did you become so, the foremost expert uh, for the IRS for things like this? I I was hired
1: by the IRS in a case in I think 1974, which was um, a, a it was a value case. Uh, against the former governor of Illinois, Otto Kerner, who had been chairman of the violence in American cities. And he was a very popular governor who had gotten into trouble um, in, in a stock fraud um, case and he was in prison. And the IRS told me who the, his, appra- his appraiser was and I knew the guy and I knew he was a real blowhard that uh, inflated his own importance and so on. Um, and I came up to a value of about 25,000 and he was claiming 75. And I never settled. I mean, the IRS could have settled. Um, but I was their, their appraiser for that case. And I, and I thought the other appraiser is a lot older than me. He's been at it a long time. Um, that um, I, I can't go in and just say well I'm a far bigger and a more important dealer than he is and this is my opinion and he's going to say his and he's done it been a dealer longer. Um, and so I, I thought that the key issue in appraisal cases is that experts frequently just say, well, I know this is the answer because I've done this for 30 years or forty years. And I decided to analyze male intuition. How do I just know that this is worth is twenty five thousand? So I broke it into five sections and, and with different uh things uh in category five were individually important letters and had individual values on them. Um, and category one was stuff that never should have been saved, that no intelligent library would even shelve it. It wouldn't give it space to throw it away. Uh, and then I and I broke down each category, and I divided the collection into these categories and multiplied it out and came to 25,000. Fortunately, I had a female tax court judge who appreciated it when I said I would never touch female intuition? I was only dealing with male intuition, and there was no compromise. She found for the government. Uh, the IRS then adopted my uh, way of analyzing it as their policy, followed by the Society of American Archivists. So it it came out. It put me on the map. And uh, very rarely were appraisal cases won either way. The judge would be kind of bewildered uh, and would split it down the middle, half, halfway between. And I didn't have that happen. I did another case against the IRS and, and won that case um, by, with logic. You know, you really had to show people how you did things. Um, You had to demystify this business um, of how you arrived at a price. I I did that with Nixon. Um, It wasn't a guess. That was the 30 million was the maximum money available. I went over the list of who donated for the Nixon library, which raised 30 million. And I knew quite a few of of the people who gave big money. And I called them and I said, how much more would you give if... If I had his papers for sale and, and I extrapolated it So that's why I thought I would have prevailed with DOJ um, And I always found in, in going to court You had to be extremely careful You had to be paranoid That you've missed something um, and, and, and I describe in the book the anxiety I had um, Every time uh, with with um, being cross-examined and saying something that somebody then you know it's like how much time did it take you to arrive at this opinion whatever you say it's a trap question you know if you say three days well you know can you explain to this jury you only spent three days while this man's life is on trial here well three days for an expert like you you must have been very un- unsure of yourself so there are a lot of trap questions uh, And I, I was very careful But I really followed logic uh, As to how I arrived at things And I wanted to demonstrate things So other people, a jury or a judge They fully understood it They, they weren't just going on my reputation um, That it was logical uh, And treat people as intelligent people who want to know, and uh, they don't want to hear, you know. Well, I'm Ken Rendell, and I I sell all this material, and um, and I do very well. So wonderful, agree with me. You know, I don't think that uh, it's not. It was never my style. So I had a very good record.
0: There's a picture on the front of your book of the Kenneth W. Rendell uh, storefront. I assume that's on Madison Avenue in New York. Yes. Do you still yes. have you had stores in, in Tokyo and others? Did you still maintain these stores? Um, we closed
1: New York a few years ago. The, the Carlisle Hotel was our uh, landlord. And when our lease was up, there was a new owner of the um, Carlisle and who had paid a record price and they wanted to raise everybody's rent. And they did. And they raised ours four and a half times what we were paying. And as I told them, even if I forged everything, we couldn't pay that kind of money uh, to be on Madison if I had no cost of goods sold. And um, it, it, was, it was unfortunate. We, we really enjoyed the interaction with people coming in and being amazed that they could get a letter or document of a hero, of an author that was important to them. We, we, it was exciting to be in there. Um, because people never thought they could find something. And then they find it's $2,000, you know, or $2,500. It, it's much less than they imagined. Um, it, it was very satisfying, uh, the, the reaction. And we developed very good customers uh, in New York and, and from other places. I know you're in
0: Paris now on a trip, but you live where? Uh, in Boston. Did you grow up in Boston?
1: Yes, to the degree that I did. What do you mean by that? Well, I just mean I still have an, an attitude of being very excited about what I do. Um, and I've been in this 63 years, and I am just as excited now reading um, an interesting letter, the insight that it brings you to. Um, it. Um, this has been a fantastic career to be in and uh, I've never lost my excitement for it why did Bill Gates ask you to build him a library Uh, he Bill Gates was unusual in that he um, was the least pretentious person you could imagine he was nothing like what the book said about him or people told me about him because all of them were talking about him uh, in a business context, not a personal context. And I was part of his personal life. He was building a new house. Uh, the, we had built libraries and collections for other people um, in, in the in computer world, the internet world. Um, he heard about me um, and then uh, saw a segment on the Today Show. Um, I was talking to Brian Gumbel about a collection of presidents that I had for sale. And um, Gumbel was very particularly interested, he asked me to stay through the commercial break and then continued. Um, and he apparently saw this. And that was the, and he asked me to come to Seattle to talk to him and Melinda. Um, and they, um, as I said, he was the lead, he, he constantly said, well, he didn't know. And I had to remember that he never finished college. And that was really very charming, you know, and he wanted to know. Uh, so I really had uh, an excellent uh, experience with them, with both of them. They, their interests were different. Um, I never go into details, but she read a lot of literature Um, and he he knew um, the history of mathematics and development in in science extremely well Uh, he knew the personalities better than I had known but knowing that I could be challenged uh, with what I would consider obscure people in the in common knowledge but then he asked about people that I had learned about and I could um, discuss them um, and, um, and and one person in particular that I had studied, Carl Friedrich Gauss, um, and he asked me about Gauss and what could he get of Gauss. And I had the and I knew the answer, so it was a very good
0: uh, um, experience. How many books was he looking for? And is there any way to? Uh, Give us the kind of money that was spent to get them there. And how did you put this together? And when, what year was it?
1: I think it's late 90s. And um, a, a, at this point, a, a lot of things are a blur. And I, I would have to look something like that up in my own book because I am accurate in the book. But it was late 90s. There are more than 10,000 books, a lot of manuscripts. Um I honestly don't have an I don't know the how much money was involved I never added it up and I would never disclose it if I did know Um, you know that's that's just between me and a client in fact I never said anything about doing stuff for Gates until he was on the cover of Time magazine and the story was the private world Um, and he brought me up in that uh, article uh, saying he was building a library for his new house. Um, and the the whole library was done over a period of years. Uh, but the initial part had to be done uh, very quickly. Uh, they thought the house was going to be finished in 10 months from when I first met him. So there wasn't a lot of time. And we put an army to work on it, uh, acquiring the books, cataloging them, Um, We replicated his uh, library rooms in a warehouse in Boston. So we knew where things, how things were going to be shelved. It was done um, with a lot of efficiency. It had to be. It was a big project.
0: Presidential signatures. The most expensive presidential signature today would be which president? Lincoln. And how Abraham much, Lincoln. And what's the most anybody's ever paid for it?
1: Um, it would be in the millions. I, I've sold Lincoln letters. I, I saw one in particular about why we are fighting the Civil War, and that was multiple millions. And I'm not sure about, but other other things at auction must have been must have brought that kind of money. Lincoln is the the uh, person who appeals to almost everybody um, I mean, you, you have kind of all of the sympathetic things going on uh, He's assassinated, he's a martyr um, He freed the slaves um, He changed the, the, saved the union um, and his family life was s- sympathetic um, so Lincoln Lincoln is probably uh, he's very common actually you, do, you can buy a letter you can buy a presidential document signed by Lincoln for $15,000 and everyone saved anything of Lincoln um, he was never thrown away whereas Millard Fillmore or James Buchanan or Andrew Johnson were not names that people recognized and if they had a letter from any of those people um, could easily be discarded. Uh,
0: But Lincoln was always saved. How did you learn to assess what is forgery and what isn't? um, I didn't like the fact that dealers,
1: when I asked them, you know, how do you know that's genuine? Well, I just know. I mean, I've been doing this 25 years. And I thought that that was a poor answer. Um, I thought that I should be able to explain um, to a, a collector um, As I would to a jury eventually um, How I knew something was genuine and, and Or how I knew it was a forgery And I, I spent a lot of time studying the situation um, There were a lot of known forgeries and so I was looking at the differences. You know, how did how did some experienced dealer who had seen, uh, let's say, fifty Lincoln letters or a hundred Lincoln letters, what what was happening when he decided something was a forgery? Well, well, he says, "I just I just know," or it's the same as well. It's my intuition. Uh, In fact, he had all these images in his mind, and he was very quickly, in a nanosecond, looking at the handwriting on something and reflecting off of having seen 100 images that are in his mind, or that the paper isn't right. Well, the paper's a little different color than, let's say, than Lincoln ever wrote on, um, or it's the wrong size paper. Uh, he always wrote on relatively small paper, unless it was a very important letter, and then it was always on state printed stationary. So there would be things that would tip people off, but they didn't really know how they knew. And um, I did a book in 1994 called Forging History, uh, and the, the photographs are through my microscope uh, and step by step, I took apart forgeries so that the the viewer, the reader, uh, could see what I was seeing and how I was arriving um, at my opinion. Um, because in, if, if you do something, and I was not a for hire forgery expert. What I sold was genuine and guaranteed genuine. But I, I was not looking for cases uh, to be involved in uh, because it takes a lot of time if you're going to explain everything, if you're not gonna just say, I know the answer. Um, and um, when I did the Hitler Diaries, I knew instantly that it, that it was fake. In fact, it didn't look anything like Hitler. And Newsweek had gotten some copies um, of Ger- it was just German handwriting. And I sent back a message to Stern Magazine, and I said, you know, what is this that you sent? I mean, it wasn't even close enough to realize that it was a forgery. Uh, I didn't know what the point of it was. I didn't know who supposed or, or who wrote it. But my job at Newsweek was to prove to the public whether it was genuine or whether it was forged. And that was the crucial issue that a reader of Newsweek um would be convinced they would know what i saw that made this absolutely a, a fraud um the the bigger issue for me and what uh, i took away from all of this i was absolutely amazed of the power of positive thinking in all of these forgery cases um the the experts weren't that good um, were really not good at all. I mean, everyone authenticated. Jack the Ripper, the Mussolini, um, all these things had a lot of people authenticating it. And they weren't that skilled. Um, and But the executives at these companies went for these things, hook, line, and sinker. And it was the, the forgers who were really clever because they set these up um, with the victims in mind. Um, and they succeeded within the first round. A- everything got authenticated. And there were different... Uh, uh, th- I mean, the Hitler Diaries was the worst. Um, because you had all these experts who weren't experts. And you had historians who knew nothing about handwriting saying they were genuine. And where, one of my requirements was I wanted an historian of the Third Reich to go through the contents of the diaries and tell me what was in the diaries that did not appear in any published work. And nobody did that. Um, And it turned out all the details in the Hitler diaries came from only one published work. Um, The guy who did it uh, didn't even bother to to do multiple uh, sources or create things. I mean, created things you know, like oh, an entry of oh, see, uh, Herman Goring has gone and done it again. Uh, I just told him I didn't like the town. He's burned it down. Um, so those kind of things were made up. But the the um, the basic facts they there were no entries for di- for days where this one book didn't have any entries. it was. It, that you know that the Hitler diaries was made into a comedy, um, and it was a comedy. Um, it was a British movie, um, and uh, it was sad for some of the people who lost their jobs who did not agree uh, to publish this. And that was the editor of Stern magazine. Uh, he was against it and um, never believed in it, but. Uh, the the, the 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 Forger's um, reporter at Stern, who was hook, line, and sinker you know, into this, uh, he went to the owner of Stern. And the owner, uh, who was pure administrative guy, uh, he wanted his own scoop to show his uh, employees at the magazine that he was as smart as they were or smarter. Uh, so he bought it. Uh, for five six million um, dollars in cash, um, no records no not, no nothing and he did not know the source um, but it, it it was a comedy. it was so bad they they The forger was not a smart guy um, and it, when he was questioned by Stern magazine. He didn't have an answer to anything, but he didn't have to because they said, well, where do these come from? And he said, well, I can't say. And they said, oh, that means they came from East Germany. He said, well, you guessed it. And well, how are you, how are you getting them out of East Germany? Well, he couldn't tell them. And they said, well, it must be a high official. And they answered all their own questions. Um it really is a
0: it was a comedy uh, did did stern publish the diaries
1: yes they they had two issues of stern um the first uh, just had uh, Hitler Diaries discovered and then they had Rudolf hess on the front cover of the second issue um the third issue um was being printed when I proved to the editor. Um, and he saw it I mean I did it in Stern's offices in New York and I said I mean here's the absolute proof this is a hoax and he agreed and and uh, called Hamburg uh, where Stern is based um, and uh, stopped printing the third issue so only two issues got uh, printed
0: did Newsweek pay money to Stern to publish them or and did they yes. ever publish did they publish them
1: no um, my value to Newsweek was they they. I, I wasn't interested in doing this and so it took a while uh, to convince me to meet with them and they made lots of phone calls to me and um, they were asking me lots of questions about what could be proven and authenticated, and And um, I said to them, I said, you know, I said, it's pretty obvious to me what it is you have. Well, they weren't going to tell me. And I said, a single document could not be worth this much publication value. So it has to be multiple pages. And it has to be text that's not known. Because you wouldn't pay millions of dollars for this. You wouldn't be after me the way you are calling me multiple times a day um, I said, and the only person who's got that much publication value is Hitler So it's probably some journal, you know, that he wrote And I said, yes, it could be authenticated But I am i don't want, I'm not interested um, And then they called me, I was at the Library of Congress doing a lecture on forgery detection and that kind of did it. And they said, we'll pay you any amount of money to come and meet with us. And I went and I must say, I the, the atmosphere at, at Newsweek of secrecy and uh, people translating different parts of the diary, nobody knowing what the overall text was, um, and also uh, I was hired by the edit, by the owner of Newsweek, not the editor, and that was crucially important um, because she—I um, would not have worked for the editor. He had a stake in it. Uh, he was buying it, and um, he was—he was way too involved. Who was the owner uh, then? Um, um, talking about the
0: Catherine Gra- Catherine Graham, Ray. yeah.
1: What t- and uh, I remember saying to him, I sat in on a meeting, and they're trying to figure out whether to run the Holocaust first or, or, or the, just start the diary chronologically. And I said, you're trying to figure out what track to put the train on, and I'm telling you that the train shouldn't leave the station. You know, you don't have any proof this is real. And he said, well, they had all these these uh, authentications in Germany. Uh, and they did. Um, uh, it was it, it was different than Jack the Ripper. Um, but and they had the, the the reports from people who supposedly were careful and, and knew what they were doing. But they tended to be people who did um, whether uh, checks were forged or contracts were forged, so they were—they weren't dealing with paper or ink or bindings or any of the materials. It, it, they did very modern things, and they had these historians who knew knew the Third Reich history, but they didn't know anything about. I mean, they in the first issue of Newsweek. Um, they had a Third Reich historian in uh, uh, North Carolina, and uh, who said, "Well, they must be genuine because there are more than a hundred signatures, and the thing a forger never wants to do is the signature." Well, that's just ludicrous. That's there's no they, the forgers are proud of the signatures that they do, um, and it's the handwriting in which they fall apart. Um, and they make big mistakes, but the signatures, they think they can do those really well. So there were kind of those kinds of arguments and that, that stuff appeared in Newsweek. Um, and when I agreed to get involved, I wrote a, a piece that said, are they genuine? And, and they saved themselves by putting that teased on the cover. Are they genuine? Uh, so they could they had a claim to. Um,
0: being skeptical In the first place What was your involvement with Martin Luther King's Papers they, um, Those were kind of Sad
1: um, Involvements Because they, they um, I, I, it, Coretta Scott King Sued Boston University Saying she wanted The return of her husband's Papers and I I was hired by Boston University. And um, in the first place, she never had these papers. And he got his, his doctorate at Boston University. And his video with him uh, giving his papers and how happy he is that they want them. Because Boston University was the pioneer in collecting black leaders. Um, so the idea that she had them, it was a sympathy kind of thing and when I said I was doing the Martin Luther King case people criticized me, oh I mean how could you take the papers away from her um, and then they claimed that they they were not uh, stored archivally correctly and so I, I, I wrote the report and I was the expert on archive archives and that, um, and she lost the case that Boston University owned. Them, and it was a civil trial. And uh, I was involved uh, when Sotheby's offered me um, what they call the Martin Luther King collection at $30 million. And they expected I would tell Bill Gates to buy it. And then he would donate it to the King Center. And I went through the inventory and I thought it was worth a million or a million and a half, not 30. And I asked Sotheby's that I wanted to meet the person who came up with 30 million. I wanted to hear how he, and that was something I always did to try to forestall uh, legal um, uh, action. Because once you have the lawyers in, a lot of lawyers don't want to settle it, not in their personal interest. And um, it turns out that Dexter King wanted 30 million. And that didn't mean that Sotheby's thought they just they were offering it for sale um, And they had no involvement in the price Um, But he ended up getting that uh, Because the black caucus um, Got it through congress and Dexter got the 30 million and then his siblings all sued him But that was another part of the family dynamics then when Coretta Scott King died Um, I was way out of the uh, consulting business. But the Atlanta office of IRS called me, and they had scheduled tax court uh, to challenge her state appraisal. Um, And um, they had claimed uh, a $3 million value to her Martin Luther King papers. And because of what Dexter had gotten, uh, they thought this was a huge undervalue. And I said, well, I, I, I'd read the appraisal um, and let's see where we're going. I read the appraisal and the stuff was worth fifty or or 100000 at the most. Um, had a lot of books that were sent to him. He didn't buy the books. He didn't ask for them. Um, had uh, tons of Christmas cards sent to him. Uh, had very little value. Um, and I said to the IRS, are you now going to... Tell them that you know it's worth fifty thousand, not three million, and they said no. Uh, that wasn't their responsibility, and and I couldn't because I had done this for the IRS. And um, but I, all all of the cases it, when I when I first went through King's papers, it was just incredible. I mean, these were were sermons he wrote. Uh, to deliver in the Boston area when he was at Boston University. And and the power of, of his notes uh, was tremendous. It really was wonderful um, to read them. So it was just really unfortunate that the, the family of a really great person like that, um, that the, the children had some such bad family dynamics. You know, one sells them. Gets, you know, it's highly political situation, gets a lot of money. Then the siblings all come in that he had no right to sell them without them. It was their inheritance as much as it was his. And I just, I didn't enjoy the, the, my role, but it was necessary. I mean, I wanted things to be correct uh, and fair. Um, and I made them turn out pretty much that way. Uh, but I didn't. I, I didn't enjoy the the bad parts of that. Do you still have an active business? Um, it's winding down. Um, the um, part of it, I have to say, the effect of writing a, a memoir um, after based on about sixty five, actually seventy years. Um, in business um, is the sense that I've done everything in business that I want to do and I want to have time for quite a few other things um, so I am in, in the process of, of uh, really reducing what my business role is what we- I still love the material, I collect the material I want to have more time to use my collections Um, To inspire people uh, For people to see um, What success is based on And things don't fall out of the sky um, On you And um, What it took for me To get where I got to A lot of of learning areas um, And um, Very hard work um, for a very long time, um, the enormous benefit of of dealing with people who are interested in other people other than themselves. You know, if you if you collect historical letters, you're interested in those people. So the people I've dealt with have been really fantastic. And um, as I point out in my memoir, Um, with so many of my major clients when they stopped collecting generally because I couldn't find more things for them we maintained the relationships and I've got a surprising number of pictures on vacations with clients um, long after they had stopped collecting so it's been a wonderful people business Um, but I want to do more with the social issues that really concern me in the country um, and and use history um, and outreaches to um, very much the purpose of this book to demystify success, to encourage people Um, and, and I have a private educational foundation which was really what inspired me to do this I didn't want to write an Indiana Jones uh, book uh, and I would say that it's it's Indiana Jones adventures but it's also who Indiana Jones is um, he's that guy running in front of the big ball coming out of the cave in the first Indiana Jones which frequently I felt like I built a a business that was that ball and um, it was bearing down on me um, because I got involved in so many different things and and different places. But I really want to um, get into some of the big concerns that I have in life and, uh, and to, to whatever degree I can make a difference with them.
0: Let me ask you about a couple other people you talk about. Um, you know, for years, if you went to the Book of the Month Club and you subscribed, you got the Will and Ariel Durant 11 volume series on civilization. What was your relationship to those two? They um, and I, I was very aware of that. And I was very aware
1: of the of the the fact that other authors really put them down and because they had cheapened history and they were they were a synthesis of, of history. And I went representing a university um, who wanted to get their papers and all their research materials. And um, the the two of them were really different from each other. Um, during the day, uh, Will would be writing and wouldn't talk to me, but Ariel would t- talk to me nonstop uh, about how great her husband was and but at 5 o'clock, he would quit writing, and he and I would go. They lived in the Hollywood Hills. And at 5 o'clock, he and I would go walking together without her. Um, and then and he would be very serious. Um, it, things started to collapse when Ariel was grilling me, and I knew this would happen. Uh, and she wanted to know how I would arrive. How did I arrive at values? And I said, well, you know, I have to make comparisons. Well, I had a, a manuscript of Jean Jacques Rousseau, a handwritten manuscript, had been broken up here in Paris, and you could buy pages, which I did for for a relatively small amount of money. And I said, well, I you know have to make comparisons uh, with other people, and I said uh, Jean Jacques Rousseau comes to mind. And she said, no, there's only one person you can compare my husband to. And I said, who's that? And she said, Jesus Christ. And I knew I was in trouble. (laughs) And um, she just thought everything was priceless. And that meant really priceless. I mean, there was no amount I could have come to. Um, It's a wonder they were married. I mean, she was highly aggressive. And assertive And he was um, But you know The the thing that I really liked With their collection That made it valuable Was his research materials If an author um, With history Keeps all their research materials I view it Depending upon the quality Of what they've saved um, As being a goldmine For other people To use all those research materials materials and come to other conclusions uh, or other variations on it and uh, I really enjoyed him the the tragic thing is um, they didn't give their papers um, they both died with very close to each other and their kids sold everything in a lawn sale and everything disappeared from their archives they, I mean never went to anybody and um, it was just scattered, in literally a yard sale. The kids had no appreciation; didn't know anything about me, and uh, that was something that really ended poorly. What was uh,
0: what value did you put on the papers?
1: I don't remember, but I mean it would have been a couple of hundred thousand, three or four hundred thousand. I mean, it, which was really good value, um, and. Uh, I knew that it would could also be you know someone else would take the attitude. Well, they were book of the month club people. Uh, He just did digests of what other people wrote, and there was a fair amount of truth in that. Um, But his research materials were were really good, Um, and I was really sorry when people told me they had gone to this yard sale and uh, you know like three inches of file, fold, uh, file folders were like $10 and you know this was the research material that I thought collectively maybe four drawers full of it um, was quite valuable
0: what's um, the most valuable thing you have in your personal collection <laughs> It, I, a
1: document that I'm I, I joked with my wife I, I'm doing a, um, a, a talk in New York um, in this winter uh, on hope in letters and people expressing hope for their future and their motivation and, uh, and it's mainly in the American West and I pull three things out of other collections that I have one Harry Truman uh, who I spent considerable time he, he met when I was 19 years old I went to see him And uh, he ta- he gave me very straightforward answers to everything And I thought he was one of the most sincere and genuine people And he wrote a letter, a handwritten letter on White House stationery um, To the then Supreme Court Justice Who he had appointed And, and talking about how he hoped That he did the, all the right things But he couldn't have been right all of the time and Churchill's statement, um, I can offer you nothing but blood, uh, sweat and tears. Um, And he really was offering the British people hope because he was giving them an honest answer uh, and they hadn't been getting any uh, honest answers. And I said, but if I really do hope, I said, here's the document that's the most valuable document to me. And my wife looked at it and she realized it was my notice from selective service that I had failed the physical for the United States Army during Vietnam. And so in a way, that's the most valuable because everybody was getting shipped right to Vietnam. Um, but it's it's hard to say since you know these are things I've owned a long time. And things are valuable for different reasons and in different contexts. I mean, I, I have a couple of Eisenhower letters that are just unbelievable about um, how affected he was by casualty numbers. But he couldn't let his decisions be influenced by that. He could do the best he could to prevent casualty numbers, but he had tears in his eyes every day when he looked at that number. And I thought that was just fabulous that, that he cared like that. Um, I quoted that letter, and I quoted another Eisenhower letter, um, and the American West fascinates me because that hope of a better life, um, people got on their, in their wagons, they went to Oregon for better farmland, when um, the, the Midwest, there was no such thing as crop rotation, so people didn't realize they were burning out um, their soil. Um, By planting the same crop all the time With rocky problems in New England Uh, People going for religion uh, Specifically the Mormons And only the Mormons Um, But uh, all of this is very much about hope And doing something uh, Getting off your butt So I'd be really hard put to say What's the most valuable Because it's when It's valuable to me uh, and important to me, but it might not be, unless it were put on the market, uh, wouldn't necessarily be valuable to other people.
0: The name of the book is Safeguarding History, and the subtitle is Trailblazing Adventures Inside the Worlds of Collecting and Forging History. And we didn't even get below the surface with this memoir, and there's a lot more in here, and I'm sorry we're out of time, but... Thank you very much for talking to us from Paris. Kenneth W. Rendell, we appreciate it very much.
1: Thank you. Thanks for listening to Booknotes Plus. We want to make sure you know about our latest podcast, Books That Shaped America. It's a companion podcast to our 10-week television series of the same name. We've teamed up with the Library of Congress and selected 10 books from across American history that have had a major impact on our society. Each week, the C-SPAN television program will focus on one of these books and its impact. This companion podcast will give you more background on the book's authors. If you want to learn more about books that shaped America, go to our website, c-span.org. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.